Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. The Biden administration has ended the border policy known as Title 42, using a health law enacted during World War II to keep migrants seeking asylum out of the U.S. Well, despite fears of the worst, things so far are fairly calm and orderly under the new Biden asylum rules, but that could change at any time. The president sent 1,500 troops to the border for a show of strength, Polls show Americans support tougher rules on asylum seekers who come here illegally. The political impact of the border situation. That's next after the news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. Well, last week, the Biden administration ended a temporary health policy known as Title 42. It was invoked during the pandemic by former President Donald Trump to limit the flow of migrants into the U.S. President Biden warned it would be chaotic for a while, his word. But so far, the flow of migrants seeking asylum has been much lower than expected and quite manageable. But, of course, it's early. And Republicans are hoping they can make immigration policy a centerpiece of the 2024 presidential election, something Democrats would very much like to avoid. So this hour, we're checking in on the new asylum policies and what, if anything, they could signal for next year's election. Joining us first, Michelle Hackman. She's a reporter with The Wall Street Journal based in the Washington Bureau. She covers U.S. immigration policy. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also joining us, Rafael Carranza. He's a reporter with the Arizona Republic. He also covers immigration issues for the paper and the USA Today Network. Rafael, welcome. Thank you, Scott. Michelle, let's begin with you. Uh, Give us just a short history and remind us, if you would, how Title 42 was implemented by the Trump administration and what impact it had. Sure. So Title 42 was a measure that the Trump administration announced within a week of the pandemic, uh, the pandemic really beginning. It was about March 20th, 2020. And what it did was, you know, they kind of cleverly found this thing in public health law that had never been used before that said if a foreigner enters U.S. territory and poses a risk of spreading a communicable disease, that person can be expelled. Um, And so they took that to mean that could be true even if the person entered U.S. territory, as in crossed the border and asked for asylum. 
which normally kicks off a process uh, a process where they can't be kicked off of U.S. territory. Um, and so they started implementing that sort of as a way of getting around asylum laws. And it's fair to say that, I mean, Donald Trump sort of made immigration policy and, you know, what was happening at the border a centerpiece of his campaign from the very moment, literally, that he announced he was running in oh, 2016, yeah. right? I mean, since then, people have tried to say this is a public health measure, doesn't have to do with immigration. But the day that Donald Trump announced this policy, he made it very explicit. He said, you know, for years we've been dealing with this issue of people coming and asking for asylum and we couldn't stop it. But here we found a way to stop it. And when President Biden came in, of course, Title 42 was still in effect. What did how, how did his administration see Title 42? I mean, they just uh, uh, lifted it that last week. Uh, did they try to lift mm-hmm. it previously? What, what was that? What's the short history on that under President Biden? Yeah, I, I want to emphasize that the, the difficulty for the Biden administration is once you have found a way to turn off the asylum system, turning it back on is really difficult because it comes with you know, without doing something else on top of that, just turning it back on, you know, saying yes to people that you were just able to say no to before could potentially prompt a lot of people to come to the border. And the Biden administration was so fearful of that, that it took them, let's say, two years to really prepare for the end of Title 42. Really quickly, they they did actually try to end it about a year ago, but they were blocked by Republican states suing in court. And it would, it, I mean, you have, I don't know if you, you know, read the tea leaves of the Biden administration, but it, was there a part of them that was kind of relieved to have this uh, policy in place while they could figure out what to replace it with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what, one thing that was striking was, you know, during the campaign, Biden would say things like, I would lo- I want to restore our asylum system. You know, this is a core tenet of our American, the American promise. We never mentioned Title 42. And, and, you know, when things like that, you know, the state suing, when the judge ruled against the administration, the administration was definitely relieved. At least that's what our reporting showed. Yeah. And Rafael, you have been to the border uh, at Tijuana recently, uh, where a lot of migrants uh, gather when they get to the border. Uh, what was the scene like there? Yeah, so that's uh, a city, uh, the largest Mexican city uh, on the U.S. side of the border, and there are more uh, roughly 14,000 migrants that have been waiting there. Some of them have been waiting for years, um, essentially, you know, for the opportunity to claim asylum. I had the opportunity to speak to a man from Honduras uh, who had arrived in Tijuana uh, two years prior and had attempted to uh, claim asylum in the U.S., but because the family is from Honduras, Title 42 applied to them. So they were sent back to Mexico twice. And so the only chance essentially that they see available to claim asylum is to uh, wait for an appointment using the CBP-1 app. That is now the requirement for anybody to claim asylum along the U.S.-Mexico border. They have to request uh, an, an appointment through this app. There's only a limited number of slots available. And so that means that many people will will likely continue waiting for an unspecified uh, length of time. And for example, the family that I spoke to, you know, they were they were staying at a migrant shelter, the largest migrant shelter in Tijuana, along with 1,700 other migrants. And the conditions there, um, you know, they're a bit precarious. Um, you know, kind of taking things day by day. Um, but it definitely, you know, it's 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 not an ideal situation, um, you know, for people to be waiting. And I think that that also can factor into the consequences of kind of what people decide to do and how long they might be willing to wait for an appointment. 
I want to come back to that app in a moment, but uh, you said that some of them have been waiting years. Uh, and I'm just wondering, was there any kind of processing of their claims or were they just there kind of biding their time? It, it differs uh, you know, from city to city. And I think that the process in one area differs, uh, you know, given the geography, the availability of resources. Uh, for example, Tijuana, as I mentioned, is a massive city. There's over 30 shelters there and they're all at capacity and have been at capacity for some time now. And in, in some in, in some of those cities, you know, they devised uh, systems and mechanisms to create a sort of queue or wait line for people to have the chance to claim asylum rather than be camped out at the ports of entry uh, per se. You know, they would have a digital wait list in Tijuana that assigned numbers to people as they arrived. And as those numbers approach, they would then be able to, uh, you know, approach the port of entry in San Diego and have the opportunity to be processed by Customs and Border Protection. But those numbers were very, very, uh, very uh, small, particularly because of Title 42, and that limited, um, you know, the ability of customs officers of the U.S. to to process people. Um, asylum was essentially, you know, shut out, except for a few, you know, humanitarian exemption cases. Um, you know, that had to be, uh, you know, argued by by essentially with the help of of attorneys. Um, Otherwise, and people were essentially stuck um, in some of these cities and in other areas where you don't have the shelters, where you don't have, you know, these these mechanisms, um, then uh, people had to, you know, figure out a way to to essentially survive and and remain in those cities Mm. for that opportunity. Yeah. Well, I want to play a clip of President Biden. This is from back in January. Uh, making an announcement uh, on on his immigration policy and how he was thinking of it. Today, my administration is taking several steps to stiffen enforcement for those who try to come without a legal right to stay and to put in place a faster process, I emphasize a faster process, to decide a claim of asylum. Someone says, I'm coming because I'm escaping oppression. Well, there's got to be a way to determine that much quicker for people who are credibly seeking protection from persecution. Oh, Michelle, uh, sort of a kind of a mixed message there. He's stiffening enforcement, uh, making it harder for people who come here without a legal right to stay, but it's also faster. Um, it, it kind of get a sense there just in that very short clip of how they're trying to thread the needle here between, uh, you know, kind of appeasing more moderate uh, to conservative yeah. folks who are concerned about security and those who are immigration rights supporters, right? Yeah, I'll I'll share the Biden theory with you. Um, you know whether or not uh, it stands up to scrutiny, but the idea here is that you know Biden still wants to allow people to seek asylum. You know whether or not that happens quickly is another story that we can talk about. But um, the big issue that he has recognized and wants to try to stop is people crossing the border illegally. To do that, um, you know that is explicitly allowed under existing asylum laws, but Politically, it's quite unpopular. It turns people against immigration writ large. People feel scared that, you know, they're, they're, they see these images on TV and they feel like the border is out of control. We don't even know who's coming. These people could be terrorists. You know, none of that, uh, you know, none of those uh, fears is, is really grounded in a lot of reality, but they're there. Mm. Um, they affect the president politically. And so what he is trying to do, I mean, his theory is if you do redirect people, if you still give them the opportunity let's say by making an appointment on that app that Raphael was talking about, um, and, and you do you come across in a way where it's not going to look disorderly, there aren't going to be sort of masses of people at the border that TV cameras can capture, 
then the American people, you know, it, they won't feel discomfort about it and, and we'll still have sort of a, a semi-functioning asylum system. Yeah, it's kind of funny that, I mean, not funny, but it, uh, you wouldn't think that migrants coming from some of the poorest, most dysfunctional countries like in Central America would have cell phones and apps, but it just it really speaks to the ubiquity of that technology. And yet it it's does. not that easy to use, right? I mean, it's not that easy to get an appointment anyway. It, you know, I would say it, it's not. And, and that's partially, uh, you know, in my opinion, I, I went down and actually observed the use of this, uh, this app a few weeks ago. Um, it, it seems like by far the biggest issue is that people, uh, you know, th- th- there are way more people trying to get appointments than there are appointments. There are about a thousand appointments a day. And let's say roughly 50 to 60,000 people uh, in northern Mexico trying to get those appointments a day. Well, you know, it's like it's like, you know, it's kind of an unfavorable <laughs> uh, comparison, but it's like Taylor Swift fans trying to get tickets and there are way too many people trying to get tickets or appointments at the same time. Of course, the app is going to crash or of course, it's going to give you, you know, a, a, an error message or stall that I mean, it's it's an issue sort of made by design. Yeah. Um, we're coming up on a break, Michelle. But, uh, you know, as I said earlier, the president was warning of chaos uh, at the border. We're not seeing that now. What do you think accounts for that? It seems as though it's early days, but it seems as though these stiff new measures that they've placed on people who cross the border illegally, uh, that message has trickled down to Mexico and people for now are being deterred by it. All right. We are going to continue talking about the role that immigration might play in the 2024 election. uh, Now that Title 42 has been lifted by the Biden administration, what comes next and how might it play out? in the 2024 elections, both for president and for Congress. We're going to continue talking with Michelle Hackman and Rafael Carranza, and we're going to be joined by Philip Bump from The Washington Post in a moment. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Or you can also send your thoughts to forum at kqed.org. Or if you like, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at QED Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. Stick around. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and this week for Mina Kim. And this hour, we're talking about the role that immigration policy could play in the 2024 race for president and Congress. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Will immigration be an issue that you are going to evaluate a presidential candidate on? And, you know, what would you like to see Congress tackle on immigration? 
And, uh, you know, have you immigrated to this country or have friends or family members that are trying to uh, talk about that experience? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. We've been talking with Michelle Hackman from The Wall Street Journal and Philip Carranza from the Arizona Republic. And joining us now is Philip Bump. He is a national columnist with the Washington Post, most recently wrote an article uh, on the presidential election titled, What Will the Inevitable 2024 Debate Over Immigration Look Like? Philip Bump, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, I want to talk about the 2024 election a little bit, but let's play a clip from Donald Trump's recent appearance on uh, CNN. It was a town hall, and uh, let's just hear a short bit of him talking about this. How they're not going to do a version of Title 42 or my Title 42, which was tough. If people are sick and have infectious diseases and lots of other problems, we don't want them being into our country. We have enough problems right now. So, Philip Bump, uh, you know, vintage Donald Trump, he he doesn't really change much. There's one Donald Trump. There's no 2.0 version. Uh, But what did you take away from his comments uh, during that town hall? You really hear the rhetoric that he used when he first launched his campaign in June 2015. You know, obviously, then it wasn't about the coronavirus pandemic ostensibly, but it was about these people coming across our border being dangerous and our need to curtail them coming. At that time, uh, he was referencing uh, crime and, and the idea that that new immigrants to the country engaged in crime, which actually is statistically not not the the case relative to native-born Americans. Uh, But it is the same pattern, as you say, that he is trying to cast them as something dangerous, as this situation as being fraught. Uh, I think more telling in that CNN town hall was the fact that he actually tried to defend his family separation policy, uh, that he sees, uh, at least for the primary, that there is still an opportunity to be wrung from the idea that parents should be taken away from their care, kids should be taken away from their parents at the border as a punitive measure, as a as a uh, a measure that will uh, make it so people are less likely to come here. One of the least popular policies of his presidency, uh, but he re- reiterated that he sees that there is still political space to do that, whether or not he's correct. Well, there, there was a lot of uh, consternation about that policy, and I know that the Biden administration tried to reunite children with their uh, Uh, their parents and other family members. How, How successful was that? It was moderately successful. There are still children who, uh, for whom their parents have not been located or identified, uh, but the, the majority of them, according to the most recent numbers, which came out, I believe, in October, uh, or at least that I have seen, suggest that the majority of them have been reunited with their parents, which obviously is a good thing. Well, in addition to uh, Donald Trump, we have uh, Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor, running Ron DeSantis from Florida, likely to jump in. Um, Philip, what are you hearing uh, from those folks, Tim Scott, also from South Carolina uh, and others about this issue and how they are either echoing Trump or, you know, diverging from him. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating is the way in which Donald Trump in 2015 really picked up on this thread. Uh, so there's a surge in uh, unaccompanied minors, they're called children who uh, didn't have parents with them that came to the border in 2014 and really spiked uh, concern about immigration in the far right conservative media. Uh, that didn't trickle over into normal Republican politics until Trump uh, started talking about it in June 2015. And in doing so, really reshaped the Republican Party's broad approach to immigration in a way that lingers, in a way that cares. 
carries on. You know, his his argumentation about the wall and, you know, all of the subsidiary arguments that he would make about the wall, his effort uh, to impose a national emergency that and actually scoop up funding where he could build the wall that began in 2019. Uh, you know, all of these things reinforce this pattern within the party originating really in conservative media, but picked up by Trump in 2015, uh, that carries over to the state. There is no space, really, within the Republican Party for any candidate, any challenger to Trump to have a particularly soft or even a, 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 a noticeably softer position on immigration than Donald Trump himself does. And so we see, you know, the rhetoric from people like Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, that really reiterates and, and to some extent tries to outdo Trump's rhetoric. Uh, for people who are running directly against Donald Trump already, there's actually probably not a lot of, you're not going to own that issue. And so there's not a lot of value in talking about it in general. Well, and Michelle Hackman, uh, you know, although title, title 42 has been lifted, it, clearly the Biden administration is sending a signal that they are going to be hard on people who do not come to the country legally, who come in illegally and then try to get asylum. There'll be like a five-year higher standard for asylum, a uh, five-year ban and then a higher standard if they try at that point to get asylum. Do, what do you make of that? Does that mean that Trump was onto something in a sense, or that the Democrats are just so frightened of this issue that they don't want to deviate too much from what the previous administration had done. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, I struggle describing this to people because I, I wouldn't describe Biden and Trump as uh, remotely similar on, on immigration, <laughs> but they are much more similar than I think we would have expected. I think a lot of people really wanted Biden to take immigration as seriously and sort of be as bold as as Trump was. And that definitely has not happened. And it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, in poll after poll, immigration is a top issue for Republican voters, but not for Democrats. You know, Democrats care a lot more about health care, other domestic issues. Um, I think what we've seen also is that, you know, once uh, Trump opened this sort of Pandora's box of Let's try these harsher and harsher things to get asylum seekers not to come to the border or not to cross the border. It's hard to not use those once they've been tried and once they've been, you know, uh, somewhat successful. Um, and I think that's what we see here with with what you were describing with this this stiff new policy. Uh, a lot of people refer to it as the transit ban. You know, basically it says if you uh, cross our border and you haven't applied for asylum in another country first and been rejected then you are presumed ineligible here. Now, that's kind of, it's kind of a silly concept because this gov our government knows you're, you can't apply for asylum in Guatemala. If they receive your asylum application, they, they won't do anything with it. So mm. it, it's just a way to sort of raise the standard against you. Yeah. We are talking, of course, about the role immigration might play in the 2024 election. We're talking with Michelle Hackman from The Wall Street Journal, Philip Bump from The Washington Post, and Rafael Carranza from the Arizona Republic. We'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this topic? Did you see that town hall with Trump? And, you know, how does it affect the way you're thinking about immigration, if at all? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And let's go to the phones. And Tom in Santa Cruz, you're first. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Um, uh, no questions, just kind of a perspective that I wanted to share. You know, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I moved here from the U.K. five years ago. Went through that legal process, spent, what, two years and $8,000 on on getting uh, to the point where I have a green card. And 
um, you know, that process isn't super easy. And um, I think one of the things worth, you know, pointing out here is, you know, you're talking a lot about asylum. And, um, you know, there are caps on immigration for regular visas. So um, the two biggest countries that immigrate to the U.S. are are India and uh, Mexico. And um, both of those countries have wait lists of almost 20 years. So if you apply for a visa today, you get your you get your visa or green card in, in 2023, 2024, whatever it is, right? That's a ridiculously long time, and that forces people and funnels people into um, claiming asylum, whether their claim is legitimate or not. So that's the first thing. You know, I think what bothers me about, you know, particularly right-leaning, um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty politically impartial, so I, I don't like Trump, I don't like Biden either, to be honest with you, but... Um, you know, I think one of the things I regularly hear is um, I don't like um, or, or they need to do it the right way. They need to immigrate the right way. Yeah. They can't be illegal. It's like you don't know what the right way is. And the yeah. right way may take you 20 years. That's a real problem. That's why a lot of a lot of people are going the asylum route. And then yeah. well, the and, point and, is I think that we just need to have a bit of empathy. Yeah. Too, is, is, is when these people are coming to the U.S. to escape violence in their country. Like, imagine if that was you. Imagine if that was your kids, your family, your grandchildren. Yeah, it's very, it's super complicated. And I think, you know, Michelle Hackman, uh, what, uh, what the caller is alluding to there, in part, is that this is super complicated with many moving parts. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, mm-hmm. Congress has to deal with it, which they've done in the past but seem unable to do now. Yeah, I think the bigger thing I would emphasize, you know, you you raise a really good point that our visa system is really tough to navigate. If you are eligible for a visa uh, to come here, let's say from Mexico, the wait is 20 years. Uh, that's after you've done all of your correct paperwork, which could take you a year or two, by the way. Um, the bigger issue is, you know, I, I like to lay it out for people this way. The only way you're eligible to come here on a visa if you're from Mexico is if you're child is living here, if your sibling is living here, or if your parents are living here already as citizens, or if you come as a student to go to university, or if you come on a temporary visa to get a job, let's say on a farm where you're required to leave in a few months. So the options are quite limited. And and what I would really emphasize is that most people in Mexico and Guatemala and most of these places that are coming here and, and are being pushed to come here out of desperate conditions are not eligible for any visa category that we have, even if they're coming here and immediately finding a job and filling a need we have in our economy. And that's sort of the biggest problem. I mean, a lot of these people would use those visas if they existed, but they don't. Yeah. Rafael Carranza, um, the border states, of course, include Texas, Arizona, where you're based, and California. And California, of, of those three, of course, has the most welcoming attitude toward immigrants. You know, we've set up welcome centers, and we're working with nonprofits and church groups um, down in San Diego County and I think Imperial County as well. And I'm wondering, do you see any difference or have you heard of any difference in terms of the uh, situation at the borders of those three states? Is, is, are they, is there any difference? Oh, I will say that, you know, there's uh, the work of nonprofits extends along the entire U.S.-Mexico border and that, you know, the work that we've seen uh, in Southern California and San Diego County with a lot of the shelters there is um, more or less, you know, happening um, at, you know, essentially all the other border communities as well. Um, And it's a situation that I mentioned kind of differs, you know, state by state, Uh, for example, here in Arizona, you know, we've seen uh, a a large number of people, uh, you know, crossing uh, on foot uh, across the Colorado River and presenting themselves 
the border agents directly uh, and waiting, you know, to be processed. And so we had, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people crossing per day uh, for some time over the course of the past few years. That's something that we've also been seeing in Texas crossing through, uh, over the Rio Grande and, and then, uh, you know, waiting to turn themselves into asylum seekers or, or, or to Border Patrol, I mean. But, um, th- yeah, the, the situation, I think there's a lot of similarities in that um, a lot of these border communities, you know, are kind of left to face these challenges where you have large numbers of people congregating, uh, crossing. And then w- w- once Border Patrol takes them into custody and, and uh, decides what to do next, a lot of times, because of capacity constraints, they will decide to release them at the border communities. And so that's where a lot of these local governments and nonprofits have really stepped up to uh, ensure that you know many of these migrants are not out sleeping in the streets, that they have a way to be able to get, um, since many of them will not be staying in these you know border communities, that they'll have a way to to get from you know those cities, for example, such as Yuma, which doesn't even have a, a bus station or transportation. Mm. Um, center, um, you know, to get them to bigger cities like Phoenix so that they could, you know, then uh, jump on Sky Harbor Airport to destinations all around the United States. And that's an effort that I think has been uh, has been tested and uh, really been uh, developing over the past uh, decade or so. And uh, here in Arizona, I think it's it's worked really well where you have the level of coordination mm. between the local governments and nonprofits has yielded, uh, you know, some some results that essentially have prevented uh, you know Border Patrol from releasing people directly into the streets, as yeah. we saw, for example, in El Paso. Yeah. Philip Bump, um, you know, even Governor Gavin Newsom has said, hey, we can't do this alone. Uh, the state has allocated about a billion dollars to some of these uh, uh, migrant welcome centers and immigrant welcome centers. But I'm wondering to what extent has the Biden administration stepped up and given money to border states to help them deal with the situation? Yeah, you're right. And this is this is something that is becoming a political problem, uh, both for Democratic leaders uh, like Newsom, like New York City Mayor Eric Adams, uh, as well as the Biden administration. Uh, I do think it's important to contextualize before I answer your question uh, that when we talk about the number of people who are actually able to move about freely in the United States, we see these numbers about the number of apprehensions at the border and so on and so forth. Uh, but since Joe Biden took off, it's actually fewer than a million people have been released by the Border Patrol uh, awaiting their usually their asylum hearings, which can be often be years down the line. Uh, But the, the scale of it, while disproportionately affecting border areas and now northern cities, uh, uh, I think it is often overstated. That said, yes, you're right. The the, the Biden administration is consistently being called upon, has provided some resources, but is consistently being called upon, particularly by Democratic leaders, to offer more assistance uh, in a way that, you know, by by having this increase in people at the border, at first at the border where there are resources and existing systems to handle them, it definitely did give the Biden administration some time to not have to deal with this uh, as a more national problem. That time is gone, and we see these constant calls from Democratic leaders in particular uh, for the Biden administration to do more that so far ha- have gone largely unheeded. We've got a, quite a few listener comments I want to get to. I'll give out the phone number one more time. First, though, it's 866-733-6786. If you want to uh, talk with one of our guests with a comment or question, 866-733-6786. Noel tweets, does any party have any incentive to pass really effective immigration law reform. It seems like the Republicans would rather bash immigrants and score political points rather than doing anything constructive. Michelle, I'll put that to you. And I, and I want to add, I th- you know, Democrats also use this issue uh, in certain ways to their political advantage, or at least they try to. 
Yeah, for sure. So the thing I would say is that you're right. Republicans use this as a political issue. Um, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of Democrats, particularly on the left, who care most about legalizing people already here. Um, and I think actually feel pretty strongly about our humanitarian programs, like our asylum system, sort of staying the way they are, because in part, you know, fixing them would logically lead to having to create new work visas. And uh, unions in particular are kind of opposed to that idea because those people, you know, would be competing directly against union workers. They wouldn't be unionized. And so there's a lot of discomfort on the left with sort of a really comprehensive uh, rewrite of our immigration laws. And so they are sort of sticking to the system that we have and defending it, not giving an inch and that is what is leading the sort of the two parties to be further and further apart. And what about the dreamers? Because that seems to be one thing both parties can agree on to a certain extent, is that these young people who were brought here uh, when they were very young, they have done well in school. Some of them are graduated from college already. Uh, that would <laughs> seem to be a place where you could get some agreement as part of a maybe a mini deal on immigration. Um, is there just not enough incentive for both sides to get that done, Michelle? Or, you know, are immigrant rights folks concerned that if you take care of the dreamers that everyone else is going to just languish? You know, interestingly, I, I think that's right. The part of that's right. The immigrant rights community doesn't, would ideally not want to do just dreamers. And, and folks on the right are not going to sign on to a dreamer only deal because at this point it's become so wrapped up in the border and they don't want to sign on to any immigration legislation unless it has to do with the border but I think the other thing that's happened is, you know, DACA is this program that's offered legal protections to hundreds of thousands of dreamers. It's been around for 13 years, uh, not 13, to 11 years now. Um, I think some of that has actually taken the urgency away from helping these people mm. because you don't have a situation anymore where dreamers are being threatened with deportation, yeah, for yeah. example. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about immigration policy at the border and the 2024 election. And we want to hear from you. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also send an email to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour from Mina Kim, and we will continue our conversation on immigration in just a minute. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour, and we're talking about immigration policy and the 2024 election with Michelle Hackman from the Wall Street Journal, Philip Bump, national columnist with the Washington Post, and Rafael Carranza from the Arizona Republic. Again, the number to call if you want to join us, 866-733-6786. Some listener comments here. I'll read one listener writes, my vote is going to the candidate who advocates a sane immigration policy. We have not had a real policy, just a jumble of reactions. And another uh, listener writes, is there any distinction in the positions taken by various candidates? Is Nikki Haley taking a more moderate point of view? I understand her parents are immigrants, and perhaps she's more sympathetic on that issue as a result. Let me put that to you, Philip Bump. Are you seeing any distinction any you know, between, say, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump on this issue? Yeah, so Haley did, for example, in the wake of that CNN town hall, reject the family separation policy idea. Uh, so, you know, I mean, again, that's pretty low hanging fruit, right? You know, the, this is even even among Republicans, that was not at the time a particularly popular policy. Uh, but that said, she still was coupling that with the fairly typical Republican rhetoric about, you know, ha- having a tightly controlled border and limiting the number of people who come in and reforming the system so that fewer people can get it. Uh, yes, she she. She, she does come from an immigrant family. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily is represented in, in her approach to immigration. Yeah. Well, let's hear just a little clip of her talking recently about immigration. What I would do is, first of all, do the mandatory E-Verify. I would defund sanctuary cities. I would go back to remain in Mexico because no one wants to remain in Mexico. I would fire the 87,000 IRS agents that are going after middle America and put 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground. And instead of catch and release, let's go to catch and deport. We have to be serious about the fact that we are a country of laws. And the second we stop being a country of laws, we give up everything this country was founded on. Yeah. So, Michelle Hackman, I don't really hear any moderation in that particular comment. Do you? No, I would say what's happened among the Republican Party is that, you know, after Trump, there's become a lot more uniformity on this issue. And people, you know, candidates who are even recognized as moderates, you know, moderates in Congress uh, sound sort of a lot of the same alarms as their more conservative colleagues on immigration. I think it's become much more uniform than it used to be. Philip, did you want to jump in there? Oh, no, I was just saying, right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones. And Paul in San Francisco, you are next. Welcome to Forum. Yes, I'm a moderate Democrat. This family's been in California 150 years. I don't hate immigrants, but I think if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. And in terms of the wall, maybe we should be cognizant of the fact that there's cartels trying to ship fentanyl and other drugs across our border. So maybe we should be uh, compassionate, but also be uh, realistic. And also, I think the federal government should pay for any immigrant-related program like ESL in California. We spend a lot of money. We should. But the federal government should pay for that because it's an immigration uh, uh, program. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Paul, for those comments. Um, And... uh, Let's see. Uh, Rafael, I'm, I'm just wondering what you're hearing from people at the border in terms of, uh, you know, do they sense, I mean, I would think word of mouth about the policy change and maybe, you know, uh, this, you know, it's not harsh as harsh as it was, but still a pretty tough uh, rule, the asylum rules that the Biden administration is implementing. Uh, you know, what are you hearing? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right in that, um, you know, the, I think the main way that people find out what's happening at the border is through word of mouth and um, kind of communicating, uh, you know, ex- through WhatsApp or passing along information. And I think the easiest way to do that sometimes is with people that you already know who have gone through that process. So if you have any family members, any neighbors, anyone else, you know, that you may know from your town or city who has done that before, that's, I think, is going to be the biggest indicator of, you know, of how someone is going to be able to get that information. And I think that we're now starting to see that process playing out at the moment where people at the border are getting familiarized with, you know, this new, these new rules um, that are in place and, and the bans that are in place. And I think that information will trickle down. I think the U.S. government has also said that they're trying to get that messaging um, out there as well. But um, I think that the the more that that information trickles down, um, I think that it'll it'll create that um, that that awareness among people about kind of what whether you know they make that determination whether to come or not. But I will also say that um, you know what we've seen in the past um, along the border is that whenever there is a uh, a sort of crackdown or where it's stricter or you know there are rules in place that make it harder for people to uh, to cross legally that you know they can then turn to other ways and other methods of crossing particularly you know through smuggling networks who are you know more than willing you know to to have a population of desperate people waiting in Mexican border cities that mm-hmm. they can then take advantage of yeah michelle i don't know if you've uh, kept up with this but the the previous caller paul alluded to fentanyl dealing and fentanyl uh, traffickers bringing uh, drugs into the country. I'm wondering, what are you hearing in terms of coyotes and people who bring migrants in illegally for a fee? Uh, How are they adapting to this new reality at the border? Yeah. And first, I really quickly want to mention on fentanyl because it's a common misconception. Um, You know, the same cartels are trafficking uh, you know, they're moving people and they're trafficking drugs, but they're not doing it in the same way at all. They're bringing drugs through ports of entry is usually in big trucks so they can smuggle as much as possible into the country. And we are not, not able to screen nearly as many cars and trucks as come into the country a day. Um, But, but on people, you know, you, you asked, and it's actually, it's become an issue for the cartels because this new migration policy that the administration is trying, where they're trying to divert people away from the border, either through ports of entry or through programs where they're actually able to fly here directly, it is cutting into smuggling business because, you know, in order to cross the border, in order to, let's say, wade across the river, you actually have to pay the cartels a fee. And if you're not doing that, they are losing a big stream of business. So I think that we're going to see them actually try to change tactics. Yeah. And Philip Bump, there have been some lawsuits filed by the uh, ACLU, um, and conservative activists have filed the separate lawsuits against elements of the Biden plan. Um, and I think some Republican attorneys general maybe uh, are also trying to block the changes away from Title 42. But what's the status of these different legal challenges to the situation? Well, a lot of the challenges are fairly uh, novel. The one from the ACLU that you mentioned, for example, uh, they, they filed one uh, just less than a week ago at this point in time. Uh, you know, I mean, this well, one of the key things to understand about this moment really is that things are very much in flux. The, the removal of Title 42, the introduction of these new stricter policies by the Biden administration. I think I think that's the story of the moment to a large extent. And we, you know, we don't know how it's going to be adjudicated. We've certainly seen in the past that attempted changes to Title 42 have resulted 
resulted in months later uh, a new imposition of policies or, or or new rules from courts. Uh, so that may be coming down the line. But I think that the, the fact that, that we are in this moment of flux is part of the reason why it's so uncertain what the effects will be long term politically for Biden and for Republicans, simply because we don't know what it looks like. We don't know how it changes the nature of what's happening at the border. And yes, there are these lawsuits that exist trying to get people, you know, trying to put pressure one way or the other uh, on the administration and, and on border policies. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we're going to have to wait and see whether or not those are effective. I want to read a comment, a statement really from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who, of course, was in the crosshairs of Republicans. There was talk they were going to try to impeach him. And he said, do not believe the lies of smugglers. The border is not open. People who do not use uh, available lawful pathways to enter the U.S. now face tougher consequences, including a minimum five-year ban on reentry and potential criminal prosecution. Together with our partners throughout the federal government and Western Hemisphere, we are prepared for this transition, uh, the transition away from Title 42, he means. Um, Michelle Hackman, he, he is, uh, I think, more than anybody in the administration, the one that is being watched carefully, especially by Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, um, and is he, I mean, does it seem like because things have gotten off to a fairly smooth start initially that he's, you know, some of that pressure is relieved? I would say no. <laughs> Republicans have made Mayorkas their sort of poster child of, of the Biden administration's handling of immigration. And these ups and downs sort of don't really matter to them because this is a campaign issue for them. And and actually just this week, there's been sort of some renewed effort um, among House Republicans to try to move forward on impeaching Mayorkas, even though this week the numbers have plummeted at the border. Yeah. Here's a question from Dan who writes, what has happened with any efforts by Vice President Harris or any other part of our government to improve conditions in the country such as those in Central America that people are trying to escape from? Philip Bump? Yeah, no, this is this is a, a central question, right? And one of the things that when Donald Trump was president and he he uh, actually retracted funding from these countries as, as a sort of punitive measure to try and get them to, to do more on immigration was sort of baffling to a lot of experts uh, because, you know, the challenge is that there are conditions in a lot of these places uh, that take various forms uh, that are driving people north. Uh, so we have not seen, we've certainly seen some efforts from the Biden administration uh, to try and get these conditions ameliorated to whatever extent is possible. But, you know, these are these are longstanding, not necessarily, but, you know, seemingly at times intractable problems uh, that are going to be hard to resolve over the course of three years, much less decades. Yeah. Although UN Depu- the, the UN Deputy Commissioner for Refugees pointed out recently, uh, I think yesterday even, that while the number of people approaching the U.S. border has gotten a lot of attention, most forcibly displaced people stay in Latin America and go to places like Costa Rica to seek asylum. So it's really more than the U.S. that's dealing with this crisis, uh, right, uh, Michelle Hackman? I mean, it's and I don't know that's if right. I don't know if the vice president has dealt with that, but uh, you know, clearly it's not just the U.S. The idea of root causes is almost an outdated strategy at this point. I mean, there there are two reasons why. First is. There's a lot of research that shows, you know, if you are trying to help people who are at the absolute bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum in their countries, helping them out by, by you know, giving them a little bit more money actually makes them more likely to migrate, not less, because it gives them the resources to be able to move. Um, 
The other thing is, you mentioned a good point. I mean, there's record displacement in Latin America, particularly of Venezuelans. I mean, one fourth of the country of Venezuela has emptied out of Venezuela. And the vast majority of those Venezuelans, the vast majority of people on the move in Latin America are actually not heading to America. Uh, the vast majority are in places like Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Costa Rica. You know, Costa Rica is a country of 5 million people. They have 500,000 migrants living mm. in their country. Yeah. Wow. A tenth of their population. Yeah. So clearly, uh, while we get a lot of focus on the border here in the U.S., there are other countries that are probably dealing with it differently. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in Fermina Kim. And let's go back to the phones and uh, let's go to Berkeley now. And Juan, you're next. Welcome. Juan, are you there? That eh, sounds like Juan is not there. Um, let me read a listener comment. Um, what is it going to take for Congress to reform immigration? We need more H-1B visas for workers and amnesty for people who came here as children. And we need to restart the Dreamers program. Uh, that is uh, what one listener uh, commented. Um, we talked about this earlier, but uh, Philip Bump, are you seeing any movement at all. I seem to remember just a few weeks ago, Senator Alex Padilla announced some kind of effort, a bipartisan effort. I don't know who was part of it, but is I mean, this just seems like we've been down this road before, and it just doesn't seem like the time, especially right before a big national election. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you know, this is, this is one of those political issues that has been sort of on the table forever with everyone trying to avoid it. Uh, I will say, though, that there is a new and pressing concern, which is the fact uh, that the labor market is as tight as it is. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact that America is as old as it is now, we've seen a huge surge in the number of people retiring thanks to the baby boom. And that's actually providing a massive opening in the marketplace, uh, a, a huge demand for laborers, right? Uh, you know, th there is, in, when I say laborers, I don't mean like physical laborers, I mean just workers in general. <laughs> you know, there there is now this real crunch in trying to get people hired. That by itself may, over the medium term at least, spur more consideration of how you bring more people into the country uh, in order to do these jobs, if only to, to make sure that you have enough people paying taxes to care for the older population. I think that this, this moment that we're in is one in which we're seeing a shift along those lines that may force action where action has otherwise yeah. been uh, failed to occur. Rafael Carranza with the uh, Arizona Republic. Did you want to jump in there? I did. I wanted to add that another p potential, um, you know, area of a source of pressure could be uh, the courts. That's something that we have seen now increasingly more free more common is that whenever any immigration policy is rolled out, they're likely to be challenged in court, whether it's you know by conservative, the, uh, you know conservative. Uh, legislators or governors or, uh, you know, some of the immigration and, and legal advocates on either side of the aisle, you still have a lot of that, um, those challenges coming up in court. And uh, when it comes to DACA in particular, you know, that case is still before, uh, you know, before the, the federal courts. And we're expecting any ruling at any moment that could decide the legality of the program. And if it goes away, I think that that could then create, you know, that pressure on lawmakers to then find a solution that will offer protection to the individuals that previously, you know, would have been covered by DACA. 
I want to ask you, Rafael, being in Arizona, uh, which just elected uh, a, a Democratic governor for the first time in a while. Of course, President Biden narrowly carried Arizona. Are you noticing any change either in policy or rhetoric um, toward immigration and, and border policy as it relates to Arizona? You know, we have seen, um, I think that there's been a bit of a moderation um, in the politics uh, simply because of the fact that, you know, we're not considered a battleground state and the fact that you have Democrats that are a bit more empowered now. They occupy the top three, um, the top, top three seats in, in, in the state government. Um, they still hold control over the state legislature, but by the, the, by the slimmest margin, um, pretty much a one seat majority there. And so uh, as a consequence of that, I think that a lot of the laws and that we saw previously in Arizona that were, you know, among the strictest in, in the state, whether anti-immigrant or, uh, you know, the harshest measures targeting um, undocumented immigrants living in the state, um, those laws are unlikely to pass now because of those dynamics um, in, in the state government. But I will say that those voices are still there, perhaps not as loud as they were before, but certainly it's still a very receptive audience for for that messaging, particularly, uh, you know, from from candidates as well. One more listener comment. And Michelle, I'll put this to you. Uh, listener writes, so we talk so much about the southern border. Are there similar issues at the northern border? Do migrants try to cross from Canada to the U.S.? What about immigrants who fly into the country and overstay their visas? Yeah, that is a really good question. So no, not many people try to cross from Canada into the U.S. We uh, actually briefly had an issue of, of immigrants trying uh, trying to get asylum in America, giving up and actually crossing into Canada. And just recently, the two governments sort of came up with a new agreement to put that uh, put a stop to that. Um, there, you you are right that until recently, I don't know the breakdown anymore, but until this most most recent sort of wave of migrants, about 50% of undocumented immigrants in America had actually arrived here hmm. legally on a visa and overstayed. Yeah. Uh, and that puts them in a bit of a different position, but it is obviously its own set of issues. Yeah. And of course, they sort of uh, disappear. Uh, but and many of them, I believe, are, are students uh, from Asia, China, Taiwan, uh, not yeah, maybe not Taiwan so much, but most just... often people are coming on visitor visas yeah. and overstaying those. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, we are at the end of the hour. I want to thank Michelle Hackman, reporter from The Wall Street Journal, for joining us, along with Philip Bump, national columnist for The Washington Post. He's also the author, by the way, of The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. And Rafael Carranza, reporter with The Arizona Republic. He's been down on the border covering uh, these issues for them and the USA Today Network. Thank you all very much. Thank you. And Thank thanks, you. thanks so much to our listeners for comments and calls. And uh, you've been listening to Forum. Thanks to everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer in this week for Mina Kim. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.